Our passage today comes from Deuteronomy 5, 1 through 7. The Ten Commandments, and Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Oram. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of God. Last week, we started this series, Gospel Completes Law, and um, we're going to look at this famous portion called the Ten Commandments. And today, this is the first commandment. We're going to look at, um, it's, 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 not, it's not long, it's simple. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. It's a command that there's only one God, and he, he alone is to be worshipped and trusted as God. And um, it seems simple. And in many ways, I would say of all the Ten Commandments, this is really the most important one. Um, but it's also the one that we probably fail the most at. And I'll get into that. Um, as a boy, I didn't understand that. Uh, and, but, and maybe some of you don't understand it. But um, let's get into it. So um, part one, idolatry. What is idolatry? Part one, we're going to talk about idolatry. Part two, Covenant, not righteousness-making through rule-keeping. Covenant. This is what the, what the Ten Commandments are about. It's the fundamental way that we respond to the grace that God has given us to fulfill a profound relationship called covenant. It is not about righteousness-making through rule-keeping. And, um, and part three, the gospel and the fulfillment of the covenant, all right? the gospel, and the fulfillment of the covenant. Um, before I get into part one where I talk about idolatry, one of the things that I really want to say, this, I, I actually was wrestling with this, uh, I wrestled with the timing of this particular message. This is a, a, a profoundly important message. If you've been a Christian for a while, and maybe especially if you've been in a church like ours where we, you know, we are a gospel-centered church, um, whether you may have picked this up if you've been in our church for a while, we talk about this issue a lot, that there's only one God and we are only to worship him and to trust in him and to treasure him. But we regularly are idolaters. That we, you know, our heart is an idol factor. There's so many different ways that um, different Christians have put this. And one of the points I just really want to say about this is, it's, it's a bit tough to me that it's like, oh, it's a four-day weekend and this profoundly important message, you know, is going to be given on this week. Now, to, to a certain extent, you already understand this if you've been in, uh, um, you know, in our church for a while, but I really want to just urge you to really focus and, um, and really get this, uh, really get the movement of what we're talking about here today, idolatry, covenant, and the way the gospel fulfills the covenant. This is really at the center, so much of everything that we believe. And if you could really lock down how all this has come together, you really will have a profound understanding of the gospel for you to apply into your own heart and then thus to be able to offer to others. So that's one of the things I really want to urge you. And of course, all your brother, other brothers and sisters, you know, if they are not here this weekend, you could urge them to uh, 
check out our YouTube channel or whatever it is that uh, how they how they get the messages that are that we miss. All right, let's get into it. Part one, idolatry. Now, um, you know, I grew up. I'm old enough that I lived during a period when America was 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 where Christianity was the more predominant religion of America. That isn't really the case anymore, and so. Um, it was this kind of expected idea that every decent human being understands that the Ten Commandments are the right rules for life, and every decent human being should follow those things. At least every decent American was supposed to follow those things. And it was strange. Um, nobody I knew at school would disagree with that. Um, my next-door neighbor when I was in third grade was Jewish. So I knew he didn't believe what I believed, he would sometimes go to synagogue, which I didn't know what that was. And, um, and, you know, and, of course, our family went to church. But on the question of who is God, the God of the Bible, slight differences between and some doctrinal points on what he believed and what I believe, and the Ten Commandments. He was like, Ten Commandments, yes. Ten Commandments, yes. And so a lot of people had this idea that the Ten Commandments were like the right good rules for life. And one of the things I really want to get across to you today is that's, that's wrong. <laughs> that isn't really the way the Bible presents it. And it really comes home, especially in this very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, so I, I, I grew up in a devout Christian home. We went to church every single week. We never missed, okay, or I barely ever missed, okay. And, and um, I, rem I learned these when I was a boy. And I remember learning this first commandment, like, no other gods Okay, check. I don't break that one. Right? We, uh, we believe in this God. You know, and so I just thought this meant don't be a Buddhist. <laughs> you know, don't bow down to Allah or you know, like, you know, some Hindu God or something like this. I know there's all these other gods. And so I grew up reading Greek mythology. I love the Greek mythology, but I knew all those were false. Right? It's like these are just cool stories, fun stories, but all false. There's only one God, and I don't break this good. This one, this one, I don't break. And, um, and I would say when I was younger, that was a common view. <laughs> and I would say this, um, on one level, it's not false. This is one of the barest, simplest applications of this commandment. Don't go to some other temple, some other religion, and worship some other God that's not this God. Okay, fine, right? But if that's the only way you understand this commandment, um, it's really shallow. And it was, I, I had to grow up a little bit, and I started to understand that there's a spiritual depth and a reality that you have to wrestle with. And then as an adult, if you've never really wrestled with this thing, you understand what this commandment is starting to get at. And so some of you, if, you're, if you consider yourself more of an agnostic, or you're, you know, you're secular, you're like, well, I this doesn't really apply to me. Obviously, I'm breaking this thing because I'm not worshiping your God, but I don't have some other God. So am I breaking this commandment? And the answer is yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, like if you don't worship this God, then, you know, like a lot of people today, that seems to be the, que you know, the question mark. I'm not even sure there is a God. <laughs> so, you know, I'd rather you get to the, the, the more relevant commandments, you know, stuff about stealing and adultery and stuff like that. That seems relevant to me. This, this really religious stuff doesn't seem particularly relevant to me. And so the way I want to start this message is talking about it's incredibly relevant to you. 
it's relevant to every single human being. Now, um, so the way I want to do this is, uh, whenever I think of this issue of idolatry explained to the modern secular mind here in America, I think of two people, right? And so I'm going to go to them because they said it much better than me. And uh, one, many of you know who've been through, you know who I'm talking about is that's Timothy Keller. He's like, like, like the preacher that really taught all the other preachers how to, to preach the gospel to agnostic secular people. That's okay. And then the second person I want to talk about is actually an atheist. And I want to quote from a famous um, speech he gave. And this is David Foster Wallace. Now let's start with Tim Keller. And he wrote this superb book. And um, if you are a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you should read this book. You may not want to read this book. But if, you, um, if you're a Christian, you should most certainly read this book. And the book is called Counterfeit Gods. And the prep for this sermon wasn't hard. I just opened up to the very beginning of Counterfeit Gods. I was like, oh, I bet you there'll be something right here. And so what I want to do is I want to read from you the opening of Counterfeit Gods. And so whether you are a Christian or you are consider yourself an agnostic, I think this will help you to understand that idolatry is a serious problem. All right. So let's go with this. This is how the book starts. After the global economic crisis which started in 2008. So you guys remember this? <laughs> the world almost completely had, you know, like economic meltdown in 2008. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank hanged himself in the wardrobe of his 500-pound-a-night suite in Knightsbridge, London. You guys know what 500 pounds is? It's like $800. Huh? When a Bear Stearns executive learned that he would not be hired by J.P. Morgan Chase, some of you guys know Bear Stearns is. It was one of the greatest investment banks in the world. And it went under. That's how horrible. It was. It was this bank, which had been around more than 100, went under. It was acquired by J.P. Morgan Chase. So when his firm collapsed, he found out that he wasn't going to be hired. He took a drug overdose and jumped off his 24th floor of his office building. A friend said, this Bear Stearns thing, it broke his spirit. It was grimly reminiscent of the suicides in the wake of the 1929 stock market. You guys know this? In 1929, the stock market crashed. The Great Depression started. You know, people jumped out of their windows. Basically, basically the same thing. In the 1830s, let's go a little further back. Keller goes back to a different wise person. You ever heard of Alexis de Tocqueville? He wrote this really important book on America, right? Democracy in America. So after he came to America, he kind of observed America and wrote this amazing book on America, which is it's crazy. He wrote this in like 1830. It's still true. It's crazy how true it is. I've read it. You, I've read chunks of it. It's like still true. This is what he said. Alexis de Tocqueville recorded his famous observations on America. He noted a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. So these guys are rich or well off, but they have a strange melancholy. Americans believe that prosperity could quench their yearning for happiness. But, so, but such a hope was an illusion. Because, Tocqueville added, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. 
Alex Tocqueville. I think he's Catholic, right? This strange melancholy manifests itself in many ways, but always leads to the same despair of not finding what you're looking for. There's a difference between sorrow and despair. So this is Keller. He's making a commentary about this. Sorrow is pain for which there are sources for consolation. Sorrow comes from losing one good thing among others. So that if you experience, say, a career reversal, so like this, that's a pretty bad career reversal, right? You can find comfort in your family to get you through it. And that's what a lot of people do. That's what most people do. You get laid off from work. Then you, you know, watch more football, eat a lot more ice cream, and hang out with your family, all right? That's, you know, you have sorrow, but there's comfort. Despair, however, is inconsolable. Because it comes from losing an ultimate thing. Not just one good thing, an ultimate thing. When you lose the ultimate source of your meaning or hope, there are no alternatives to turn to, it breaks your spirit. That's why this guy jumped off the 29th floor of his building. What is the cause of this strange melancholy, according to de Tocqueville, that permeates our society even during boom times of frenetic activity? That's kind of like now, right? And which turns to outright despair when the prosperity goes like this, when it goes down? De Tocqueville says that it comes from taking some incomplete joy of this world and building your entire life on it. You get it? You take some joy. It's, not, it's an incomplete joy. And then you build your life on it. And then you know what Keller says? This is idolatry. <laughs> now I want to just make a little comment here. Um, you know, Somewhere in the, I don't know, when I became a teenager to uh, college, America just, you know, God became like more and more distant. And God was this being that the religious people believed in. But more and more, the educated people started becoming secular or agnostic, right? Some of them just would just, they'd be, they'd be more tougher. They'd say, I'm atheist. And so they're like, they go, well, you're into the God thing. And, you know, I'm glad this God stuff works for you but it's not really for me. I'm glad it works for you. It doesn't really work for me. But then they go about their life and they don't know they're doing exactly, they don't, they, they don't think that they're an idolater. They don't even think they're religious. So a lot of non-religious people think, I don't have a thing with God. You do. It's just that you don't call him God. You don't even think of him as a God. But there is some incomplete joy out there and you're building your life on it. And if that incomplete joy walks out of your life, it could break you. <laughs> that incomplete joy, whether you call it that or not, that's your God. <laughs> and I'll say this to Christians too. There's lots of Christians. I, I've been a pastor for a long time. So this isn't just some kind of Christian idea, okay? Um, this thing is as real as it gets. So I have been around people who have been Christian for many, many years, they come in here, out of their mouth, it's Jesus. Jesus. They raise their hand, they might cry when they pray, and yet the real joy that they're building their life on is some other incomplete joy 
I would say in their head, they think they believe in Jesus, but in their heart, there is some other God and he's competing with the real God. Commandment number one, oh yeah, it's really, it's at stake. And these Christians very much are so, can't help but be breaking this first commandment. Let's go on. It goes on to talk about, you know, in the ancient world, you had like Athens. In Athens, there's like a gods everywhere. So he goes on and says like this, you know, they have uh, Aphrodite. She's the goddess of beauty. They have Ares, the god of war. Artemis, the god of fertility and wealth. Hephaestus, the god of craftsmanship. You know, all you engineers, you guys like the Hephaestus god, okay? <laughs> right? Um, but he goes on. Keller says this. Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from the ancient one. We're the same. We're the same. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its own priesthood, its totems and rituals, and each one has its shrine, except the shrine is an office tower, a spa, a gym, a studio, or a stadium. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the shrine I like. I like the stadiums, <laughs> right? And I like the priesthood of that particular shrine. The priesthood are those guys that give me the news on ESPN. I like those gods, all right? So what are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement, but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and our society? It builds whole economies. We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young people today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsession, concern, obsessive concern over their body. We may not actually burn incest to Artemis. Remember, Artemis, this is the god of, goddess of wealth and fertility. But listen to this. When money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and privilege. Welcome to Silicon Valley. <laughs> I read that and went, oh, that's us. That's us. You know what you just said? Silicon Valley, we sacrifice our kids because we have a God. Huh. And he's not... His name is not Jesus. Okay. Let me go to the atheist, all right? Um, so uh, this, this speech, it's gotten kind of famous in certain circles. And so David Foster Wallace is a really celebrated novelist. And as far as I know, he's an atheist. But he has spiritual wisdom. And um, this, this speech is called This is Water. And it's so famous that actually they published it into a little book. And he gave it at Kenyon College in 2005 for their commencement. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, this is lengthier than, than the little portion that I want to get to you. But here he talks about this issue. And, um, and it's incredible to me that an atheist gets this. So this is what I mean. This is not some Christian doctrine. Even an atheist can understand this is something deep in the human condition. And... If you are an idolater, it has costs. So this is how he puts it. Here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, 
there's actually no such thing as atheism. An atheist is saying there's no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships, including atheists. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truth, that's, that's Buddhism, right? Or some inviolable set of ethical principles is pretty much that anything else that you worship will eat you alive. David Foster Wallace. He goes on. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Oh, it's really true. It's crazy to me that we live in a city where people have literally hundreds of millions of dollars and billions of dollars, and you know what they wake up in the morning to do? Make more money. You can't have enough. Isn't that incredible? It's incredible. It's incredible to me. Right. But it's true. Huh? Worship your body and beauty and sexual lore, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear, your fear that you don't have enough power. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are the default setting. So here's what he's saying. He doesn't say they're evil or they're sinful. The, the Bible would disagree with that. <laughs> okay? The Bible would say, if you worship something else, not God, that is evil and that is sinful. In fact, it's sin number one. It's always, a first, it's always sin number one. But, I mean, he's not, he's not a Christian. But this is the part where I think it's so insightful. He says, it's your default setting. You know what he's saying? He's saying, worshiping something is the default setting of the human being. It's like you're born... Default setting, worship something. You have to worship something. You do it without even thinking. It's the kind of worship you gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that's what you're doing. So you don't have to come to church. You don't have to pray. You don't have to think, I'm going to worship today. On Monday morning, you will wake up to worship. Something in your life, and this is so incredible to me that an atheist understands this, something in your life has to, how does he, he put it, where you tap real meaning. Something that makes you have worth, that gives your life hope, that there's a joy that's incomplete and I've got to fill that joy and we're going to build my life on it. This is your God. And even David Foster Wallace says, this is worship. See, I didn't get this when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I thought I worshiped for about one hour on Sunday morning, and the rest of the week was normal time. <laughs> normal time was like watching cartoons and eating snacks and playing touch football, you know, you know at, during recess, right? And occasionally, you know, peeking at the pretty girl in the room or something like that, right? That's normal time. 
I grew up a little older and realized the human heart has to worship. There's always a God at stake. Okay. So here's number one. The first thing I really want to let you know is there's always going to be a God. And um, if it's not Jesus, you're in trouble. There's, there's always going to be a price to pay. And so I'm not trying to scare you if you don't believe in Jesus here today, but um, this is real. I mean, I, that's why I quoted the, the atheist. Even the atheist got it. By the way, David Foster Wallace, um, it's really sad to me that he understood this truth. For someone to understand this truth, they're so close <laughs> to knowing they need a true God. And yet, he didn't find that God. He killed himself, right? I would have really liked to have been his friend. I don't know if I would have helped him meet Jesus, right? But um, somebody who's got this much wisdom, he never found that God. He killed himself, right? Let's go to part two. I want to talk about covenant. So first, what is covenant? So I want to give you a, a, a relatively brief and simple definition. It's not that easy, and it's, it seems like some weird religious word, but it's really important. There's covenant. Covenant is a deep, committed love relationship that makes two who are two who freely choose to unite to become one. Let me say that again. Covenant is a deep, committed love relationship in which there are two who freely choose to enter into this profound commitment to become one. That's covenant. That's what covenant is. Now, that doesn't sound like a really weird religious idea, is it? Um, you immediately you think, that sounds like marriage. That's marriage. <laughs> you know what marriage is? It's covenant. Um, uh, ladies, if there is a guy and he wants to live with you, but he doesn't want to marry you, he's not offering you covenant. He goes, no, but I love you, and I have a commitment to you. Not that much of a commitment, does he? Apparently he can leave that commitment. Like, I don't know, it seems maybe sexist. Like you flip it around, guys. <laughs> you know, could just say it the other way. Right? Marriage, it's covenant. But, you know, actually the biggest marriage, the biggest covenant in the Bible is not between a man and a woman. In fact, the love between a man and a woman is actually built on the love between God and his people. That's actually the biggest love. There's like the biggest love was an eternal love where there's three united into one. It's what you call the Holy Trinity. It's always been that way. There's never been a time when they were not utterly committed to each other. And I don't know if they had to call it covenant because this is the way they were always going to be this. They were always going to be one. But then God made creation and then he invented covenant. What you know what covenant's for? Is so that there could be a love between two, just like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are three, but they're profoundly one. They always choose each other. <laughs> they will never not choose each other. So then God says, let's have a kind of relationship where two can come together and they choose to say, I'm obligated to you. <laughs> See, today, we always think freedom means I don't, I'm not beholden to anyone. I'm always, I, it's just me. I, you know, like, I'm not obligated to you. Duties are bad. <laughs> Submission is bad. <laughs> Obligations are bad. Not in the Bible. In the Bible, your duty, your obligation that you freely choose is the place you will find your deepest fulfillment. That's where you'll find your wholeness. 
Why? Because all real love happens in this form of deep commitment. Come on. You don't have to be a Christian to know that. The man who marries his wife. Um, my wife and I, we, we, had, we had lunch with, uh, we, you know, we just came back from a trip. And um, my wife and I had lunch with one of my college friends, whom I, ha- I haven't seen in years. And um, her grandfather's dying. He's 101 years old. And her grandmother died when she was in her early 90s. Early 90s. And I said, how long did they, were they together? She said, I think it was 70, it was like 70 something years. And as she started talking about their marriage, she started to cry. Because she said, you know, you could just tell, she goes, it's just one of the most beautiful love I've ever seen. Front row seat, her grandparents. I, I actually met her grandparents many years ago. She's not kidding. They have the kind of love that you and I would always just dream of. Everybody knows that kind of love commitment is better than the person who sings you some special song but is gone in a year and a half or five years or 10 years or 20, right? Everybody knows that that's real love. Bible invites you toward real love. It's in covenant. And here's the incredible thing about it. God offers it to us. And you know what the Ten Commandments are? So this is, this is really important. Why you have an understanding so many people have this understanding that the commandments, it's law, and as law, that means these are things that we do, and hopefully I'll get to do these things, and if I do them well enough, hopefully God might accept me. I won't be such a bad person. Well, on one level, that is true. The law lets you know what the standard is and what it means to be human, but you know what? That is not what God is doing here in this passage. God is doing, he's not talking to the, all, of the, all of the nations and saying, Let me give you the standards of how to be a good person. That's not what he's doing here. He's talking to his people. He's saying, I want to marry you. I'm the one who took you out of enslavement. You were in the world. It was the most advanced civilization time, Egypt. And you found out there's such a thing as idolatry. And when you live apart from me, you will always be under the oppression of a pharaoh. There's going to be some God, that God's going to have some standards. There's going to be some person who has the power in that God of those standards, and they're going to squish you under its power. I'm sure David Foster Wallace can understand exactly the spiritual issue of, I'm the one who freed you from Egypt. He's like, like, I think I understand what that means. Because the worst kind of oppression and slavery is not the kind where they put you in handcuffs and they can whip, whip your back. You watch the movies, you know, they're tied up and, you know, the Egyptians are like, you know, like whipping, whipping the Israelite slaves. Or you watch these movies where, you know, black slaves in America are being whipped by, you know, like white oppressors in in, in our history. This is actually not the worst kind of oppression. It's not the worst kind of enslavement. The worst kind of enslavement is the one where it's in here. The God is in here. The Pharaoh's in here. And when you fail that pharaoh, you jump off the 29th floor of your building. That's the worst kind. And you know what God is saying? Not those gods. I free you from those gods. I free you from those gods. And you know what I offer you? I offer you covenant. You know what he's saying? Will you marry me? (laughs) That's what he's saying. 
Do you want to be mine? I will love you forever. You know how that, that's how the Bible ends? The Bible ends in a marriage. You know what the marriage is? God and his people. And you know what it says? It says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And you know what the ultimate fulfillment of all history and of the Bible is? It's the fulfillment of covenant. That's what it is. Where God will love us and we will love him back. And we will be his people. We won't be money's people. We won't be beauty's people. We won't be some other Pharaoh's people. We won't be Egypt's slaves. We will be his beloved. And we will love him back. That's what this first commandment's about. Will you be my people? And not have any other God. Just me. I'll be the one that you will love and worship. That's what this pastor's about. Let me say, teach you a couple other things about, about, about this. Um, one, so let me give you a quick little introduction to the Ten Commandments. And this is important. Um, so the Ten Commandments are basically broken up into, um, you know, a first table and a second table. And so most theologians recognize the first four tend to recognize how are human beings supposed to relate to God. It's fundamentally what is the core way that we relate to God. Actually, all ten of them are how we are to relate to God. But the emphasis is on our relationship to God, the first four. The first one is all about relationship to God. And then the last six are all about our relationship to one another. It's called the second table. Second table about our relationship to one another. And this is important. In, in, in covenant, how we treat each other also shows how we regard God. <laughs> Let me say that again. How we treat each other it shows how we regard God. You know that in the Bible, that if you steal from somebody, you know what God says? You stole from me. If you oppress the poor, you know what he says? That you did not visit me. That's what he says. So for God, he's like saying, the first person you always sin against, so you could do something terrible to somebody else, and you're thinking, well, I guess God's not going to pay attention. Oh, he's paying attention. The first person in your relationship is God. So here's the first thing I want to teach you. We're going to go into this. The first four are more important, actually, than the last six. But the last six are really kind of subsumed under number one. Number one is always at stake when you worship God. Now, when you go to church, when you do your taxes, will you steal from your neighbors, from the government? So that's the stealing commandment, right? Isn't that at stake? That's at stake. And your relationship to God is at stake. Will you worship God? Will you trust in God? Oh, you're not supposed to lust, you know, after that girl and you know, desire her. And Jesus says, that's adultery. I don't think most of us know that's wrong. We're like, okay, I shouldn't do that. But like, you know, I'm not doing something bad against God. Not according to the Bible. Will you worship me? Like having her getting her. Is that the most important special thing in your life that would be like God to your life at this moment? Or will I be God to your life? It's commandment number one. You know, I didn't, I didn't get this when I was young. Um, it was interesting. I, I learned this stuff, but 
but um you know I, I don't know somewhere and I got worldly and after college and and um and stopped paying attention you know like a lot of people today you know, they go up in the church and they go off to college and then you know then they get busy with you know girlfriend and got to make money and you know chop it you know chop it up in, in your career and all that stuff and I was like that just at I don't know there was something inside of me that just still made me go to church right and um but and then and then I started listening to Tim Keller talk about idolatry and he talked about this and this is where I quoted he quoted so I learned this he said so he quoted um Martin Luther and Martin Luther had this other commentary on commandment number one and Martin Luther read this portion of scripture this is from Matthew chapter 22 very famous and this is said multiple times but I'll just give it to you from Matthew 22 there's a conversation that Jesus has with the, 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 the Pharisees, the Bible teachers of the day. And they come up to him, and um, so they ask him this question. Teacher, this is Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40, verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And so, here's what he says. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So let me put it to you this way. First table, first four, it's all about love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The last table, the six, love your neighbor as yourself. But let me put it a little bit differently. All 10 of them are how we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you really love God? Follow his commandments. Not because this will earn you salvation because there's no way you're going to earn salvation this way. You're going to pretty much earn the other place. But if you really love that he loved you first, this is how we love him. Now let me get to Martin Luther. And I learned this from Keller when I was in my 30s. I remember listening to this and it really profoundly convicted me and it changed everything about the way I looked at the commandments and really how I looked at life. So Keller learned this from Martin Luther. He said this thing, that when Luther read this understanding, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the same thing as commandment number one. <laughs> you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have only one God and that God, that's where you'll put your hope. That's where you'll put your love. With all that you have, that's where you'll put your worship. <laughs> and you know where this is coming from? It's the very next chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 6. There it is. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is commandment number one. Hmm. You know, so God offers us this. I will free you from all the false gods all the pharaohs of Egypt, all the hopes that you think you're going to get so that you won't jump off a building. And isn't that great? But then there's a problem. <laughs> the problem is we can't do it. It's a problem. <laughs> so let me close with the gospel. Um, I told you that this is a series called Gospel Completes Law. This is at the core of the law. And the last week I told you that there are you know, three uses of the law. And the first one shows us basically how sinful we are. 
This first commandment, <laughs> oh man, if you're honest, you know you wake up on Monday morning and some other incomplete joy is where you put your hope. It's not Jesus. I'm a professional Christian. On Monday morning, <laughs> I'm like breaking commandment number one. I'm like, here we go. Commandment number one, I'm breaking it. Here we go. And this is the human condition. David Foster Wallace says, it's your default mode. You worship. And we do not worship the one who redeems us from the enslavement to Pharaohs are gods of this world. But here's the gospel. And this is an incredible thing. And so, you know, if you've been a Christian for many years, and especially if you're a minister, you've heard this. But I hope you'll never be bored of this. Yahweh, the God who says, I'm the one who freed you from enslavement out of Egypt. He then said, so now... Give your love back to me and all these commandments I give you will totally bless you. They'll only completely free you and liberate you and bless you. So just please follow and do them. And right away, we don't. So nobody can be saved by the law. And in fact, you know, this great theologian who read through the whole Bible, John Calvin, you know, he said the first use of the law is so that we figure out we fail the law and we need a redeemer. We need, because we can't do it. And thankfully, that redeemer came. Yahweh himself came. He became human. Because the human being has to be the one who has to be on the other side of the covenant. Because God said, I want to make you my people. See, it's, it's a God and human beings. And I'll marry you. And two, we'll freely choose an eternal love. And they'll enter. So God enters into the obligation first. And then the human being said, okay, we will be on the other side of the covenant. That'd be great. Because it's better than being enslaved to Pharaoh. And then we can't do our part. So then God became a human being so that he could do our part. And he could obey where we disobey. And he can have only God as his God. And he can find his hope and his trust and his obedience. And he alone, out of all human beings who's ever walked this earth, has loved the Lord his God with all his heart and mind and might. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Only he has obeyed the great commandment in our place. And then all those of us who do not do so, which is everybody else, he says, you know, if you break covenant, there's always cost. You know, you, you, it's like a lot of people today, you think, can't God just let me go? No. <laughs> no. Because then he would be a doormat. He'd just be some loser that we could step on. There's not much of a God. If there's really important and tremendously important things at stake, there's a cost if you fail them. I mean, if you cheat on your wife, there's going to be, there's, there's going to be a cost. If you, 
If you steal from the government, <laughs> you go to jail. <laughs> There's a cost. Well, this is God. He said, when you enter into a love relationship with me, this will be redemption. But then we fail it. There's a cost. Well, that means then you have to be cast out. So God came. He came to be the other side of the covenant. He came to love God the way we're supposed to love God. He came to obey God that we could not obey God. And then he came to be cast out when we deserve to be cast out so that we could be embraced because he would fulfill the covenant for us. This is the gospel. And if you would receive that gift from that God, Yahweh came and he became a man. His name is Jesus. Yahweh was Jesus offers you this gift. Even though you and I fail commandment number one virtually every single day, you'll be forgiven. He has been cast out on the cross so that he could fulfill covenant for us and we could be loved by God forever. And then you can wake up in the morning and on Monday you may fail commandment number one. But on maybe Tuesday, you could say, because of Jesus, you know, because of Jesus, I can love you. Today, maybe for half a day, God, you'll be my God. Jesus, you alone will be my God and my hope. And then I know somewhere in the middle of this day, I'm going to forget. And then I'm going to get all fearful about money or my promotion or something. But then I can come back to Jesus because he has forgiven me. And I can make him my God again. Not because I have to, but because I get to, because I've been freed. Let's pray. So all these blind idolaters, we say with our lips, we worship you and love you, Lord, but our hearts wander. <laughs> and um, well, thank you for your word. Thank you for even the secular prophet, David Foster Wallace, and help us to have a life that is so completely built on Jesus because he is the only true God and treasure that can never die. And you will never leave us. We will never be in danger of jumping off a building. We won't even be in danger of hellfire or your rejection, though we deserve it. Because, Lord Jesus, you have completed the covenant and offered us by grace love everlasting, this most profound relationship to have you as our God as the one who loves us. We thank you. In Jesus' name.